This is our second to last piece on this channel. So we're going to be bringing this channel to a close. We've gone through the entire Sefer Chidushi Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi on the Rambam, which is a major achievement, as well as some other insights from other members of the family and Talmidim of Rab Chaim. Now, in this recording, we're going to end where we began. The second piece in Chidushi Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi is the most famous piece on the laws of davening. So we're going to conclude again with a piece on the laws of davening. But this piece is not going to focus on one idea or one person's ideas, but rather we're going to do a survey of a number of shorter ideas in the Soloveitchik tradition. So we're going to look at about a dozen short pieces, each one five or ten minutes. So we wouldn't do a recording on each of these ideas, but altogether it will be a fairly long, substantial recording of different ideas beginning with Rab Chaim. We'll start with a few technical rulings and insights from Rab Chaim about the laws of davening. And then we'll look at some of the philosophical ideas from his grandson, Rabbi Yosef Dov, who wrote and spoke a lot about davening. So we'll look through some of his major conceptual ideas. I'll begin with two smaller but very important pieces, which are quoted in the Chidushe Hagrach, which is the stencils on Shas. So this is a collection of Rab Chaim's sayings that were recorded by his students. So the first two pieces have to do with the laws of davening. So in the first piece, Rab Chaim makes a distinction between Tain Talumatar, which is the prayer that we insert during the winter months for rain, versus Yala V'yavo, which is the prayer that we insert on Rosh Chodesh and holidays. So Tosvos raises the following issue. Let's say someone davens Mincha on Rosh Chodesh and they forget to add Yala V'yavo. So the basic halacha is that they need to repeat Shmona Esrei and add in Yala V'yavo. But let's say it's already past sunset. So they can no longer daven mincha. What they're davening is tashlumin. You can make up a prayer that you missed the next time. So that evening, they're going to be praying the mincha that they missed, meaning first they'll daven mariv for the evening, and then they'll daven another shmona esrei for mincha. Now, at that point, Rosh Chodesh is already going to have ended. So they're not going to be adding in yalaviyavo. So says Tosfos, is there a point to repeating the Shmona Esrei for the earlier Mincha, which they said incorrectly, but the whole problem was that they didn't add in Yalaviyavo. There was no other issues with the Shmona Esrei. So is there a point to adding an additional Shmona Esrei that night, even though they're not going to be saying Yalaviyavo? So there's a debate in Tosfos. Says Rab Chaim, there is a comparable case with Visein Talumatar. Let's say someone forgets Visein Talumatar on Mincha of Friday. So now they're going to be correcting that Shmona Esrei on Friday night when it's already Shabbos and we don't insert the same Talumatar on Friday night because it's not in the Shmona Esrei of Shabbos. It's in the middle brachas which are omitted on Shabbos. So same issue. Is there a point to repeating that Mincha Shmona Esrei on Friday night even though they're not going to be adding in Visein Talumatar. Says Rab Chaim, there's a difference between Yala V'yavo and Visein Talumatar. So even according to Tosfos, that one does not repeat the Shmona Esrei because it's not going to have Yala V'yavo, but on the Friday night where they omitted Visein Talumatar case, they would repeat Shmona Esrei. And the way Rab Chaim explains this is because omitting Visein Talumatar affects the Shmona Esrei much more than omitting Yala V'yavo. The Talumatar whom he seder hatfila, because the same Talumatar is one of the phrases that's from the fundamental central phrases of the davening. 
And if someone omits it, they changed the Shmona Esrei from the way the Chachamim formulated it. So they did not say a proper Shmona Esrei, so they certainly have to repeat the Shmona Esrei that night, even though on Friday night there's no Vesein Talumatar. It doesn't matter because the first Shmona Esrei that they said on Friday afternoon was not a Shmona Esrei at all. So they have to repeat the Shmona Esrei on Friday night in order to get credit for a Shmona Esrei. Whereas Yalev Yavo is an additional insertion into the Shmona Esrei. It's not fundamental to the whole Shmona Esrei. There's a Shmona Esrei, and then on Rosh Chodesh we add in Yalev Yavo. But if someone skips Yalev Yavo, they still get credit for having said Shmona Esrei. So if that evening they're not going to be adding in Yalev Yavo, there's no point in repeating an additional Shmona Esrei. So this is the insight of Rab Chaim to differentiate between Yalev Yavo and Visein Talumatar. Now, Reb Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was the Rav of Yerushalayim, in his Chuvis Hart Tzvi, or Achaim Simen Nundalid, so he questions Rab Chaim's idea from the Magen Avram. In the discussion in the Shulchan Arach, Simen Kuf Ches Sif Yud Aleph, where the Shulchan Arach records this view of Tosvos about maybe not repeating Shmona Esrei if there's no Yalav Yavo, so the Magen Avram comments on this, that if it's still Rosh Chodesh, or if they're going to be inserting the Saint Talu Matar in the second Shmona Esrei, then they should repeat the Shmona Esrei. So the Magen Avram seems to assume that Yalav Yavo and the Saint Talu Matar are the same, and one should should only repeat the Shemona Esrei if they're going to be adding in Visein Talumatar. Not if it's a Friday going into Shabbos where the second Shemona Esrei won't have Visein Talumatar. Now in Reb Shlomo Feivel Shustel's Sefer Rishbe Eish Simen Dalid, so he has a nice discussion of this debate between Reb Chaim and Reb Tzvi Pesach. And the way he portrays it, the debate is whether Visein Talumatar is considered an addition to the Shemona Esrei or part and parcel of the Shemona so everyone agrees to the basic principle that anything that's part and parcel, that's fundamental to the Shemona Esrei, if it's omitted, the Shemona Esrei is nothing. And anything that's an addition, like Yalav Yavo, if it's omitted, the Shemona Esrei still counts. It's just missing the required addition. The debate between Reb Tzvi Pesach and Reb Chaim is what is the status of the Saint Talumatar. According to Reb Chaim, it's fundamental to the Shemona Esrei. And according to Reb Tzvi Pesach, it's in addition to the Shemona Esrei. And Rab Shlomo Feivel brings a number of proofs to Rab Chaim's idea that Visein Talumatar is not an addition to the Shemona Esrei, but it's fundamental to the Shemona Esrei. Now, on the other hand, in the Sefer Piskei Tshuvas, in Chelek Aleph, Simen Kuf Yud Dalid Os Yud, in footnote 79, so he also discusses this view of Rab Chaim, and he leans in the other direction. He thinks it's very difficult, this idea of Rab Chaim, that Visein Talumatar is fundamental to the Shemona Esrei. He thinks that it's clear that it's an addition to the Shemona Esrei. And he quotes a number of other cases which are also going to depend on this issue. And you could probably add many more just by thinking about it. But his three additional cases are if someone forgot the Saint Talumatar while davening Shachris. 
So now they have to repeat Shmona Esrei. Do they need to say the second Shmona Esrei with their talis and tefillin? So if the first Shmona Esrei is nothing like Rab Chaim said, they should require their talis and tefillin for the second repeated Shmona Esrei. But he says that that's not the practical halacha. It's good to do so, but again, we assume that the first Shmona Esrei counted. In addition, let's say there was an exact minion. So there were only 10 men and only six of them were davening Shmona Esrei and one of them forgot got Vesein Talumatar. So if his Shemona Esrei is nothing, he shouldn't be part of the minion. But again, the Piskei Chuvis says that he does count as part of the minion. And finally, the Chazon Ish says in Orchus Rabbeinu that the first Shemona Esrei counts for the hundred brachas that a person is supposed to make each day. So when the person has to repeat the Shemona Esrei, they get credit for the first 19 brachas they said, as well as an additional Shemona Esrei. So again, that seems like the first Shemona Esrei is a valid Shemona Esrei. It's just missing the addition of the Saint Tal Umatar. So the Piskei Chuvis assumes, unlike Rab Chaim, that the Saint Tal Umatar is not fundamental to the Shemona Esrei, but it's an addition. And he references that even Rab Moshe Sternbach, who's a close student of Reb Velvel. So he comes very much from the world of Brisk. In his tshuva on this, in Chuvas Van Hagos, Chelek Aleph, Simon Sadi, so he does quote the idea from Reb Chaim, but then he quotes that in the Sefer Birur Halacha, he questions Reb Chaim very strongly because he thinks it's obvious that Vesein Talumatar is an addition. It's not fundamental to the Shemona Esrei. And even Reb Moshe Sternbach who comes very much from Rab Chaim's world, doesn't firmly defend Rab Chaim. So it seems that the poskim do not follow Rab Chaim's approach on this, which would mean that if someone forgets the Saint Talumatar on a Friday afternoon, it's not so clear that they should repeat the Shmona Esrei later that evening after Mariv. Again, practically, they probably should, and they can always daven it as a nidava, as a voluntary davening, even if they're not obligated. So that's some of the discussion surrounding Rab Chaim's approach. Now, the key broader idea that Rab Chaim introduces in this point is that there's a difference between an addition to the Shemona Esrei versus something that's fundamental to the Shemona Esrei. Now, when we say that there are things that are fundamental to the Shemona Esrei, so that does not mean every word of the Shemona Esrei. Let's say someone davens Shemona Esrei and they miss three of the words that are in there. Obviously, they still fulfilled the mitzvah and they don't have to repeat Shemona Esrei. So this idea that someone who changes from the words of the rabbis of Chazal has to repeat the Shemona Esrei does not apply to every word. It only applies to the major themes. So there are certain themes which must be said in the Shemona Esrei, and there are certain special phrases which Chazal explicitly tell us must be included in Shemona Esrei. And if someone misses one of those, then they changed the matbeya, the formulation of the rabbis, and then they have to go back and repeat Shemona Esrei. So that's in terms of changing the fundamentals of Shemona Esrei. Then there are things that are clearly additions like Yala Yavo, all the additions that we have for the holidays and Rosh Chodesh, things that we add into the Shemona Esrei, but they're not fundamental. Now, Rab Chaim is introducing this concept that there could be something which is time dependent. So it's not set in the summer. It's only set in the winters. And it's still considered fundamental to the Shemona Esrei. So 
that's a very novel concept that even though in the summer months the Shemona Esrei is missing the Sein Talumatar, it's still considered fundamental to the Shemona Esrei in the winter months. And that's why this idea is so controversial because the other authorities are saying, how could that be? Anything which is a seasonal addition cannot be fundamental to the Shemona Esrei. So now in this regard, it's worth mentioning another point, which is the view of the Vilna Gaon. The Shulchan Arach in Arachayim Nun Tes Sif Bey's rules that what's required to fulfill the Matbeya Shetavu Chachamim. As we said, a bracha has to be made in the proper language. So according to the Shulchan Arach, that has two requirements. The person has to say the beginning or middle of the bracha properly, and the end of the bracha has to be proper. So again, as we said, it does not mean that every word must be said properly. According to the Shulchan Arach, the key phrases either at the beginning or the middle, as well as at the end, have to be recited. The Vilna Gaon disagrees with the Shulchan Arach, and he says that it's only the end of the bracha that has to be done properly. So if you have one of these long brachas, the beginning and the middle could be said wrong, so long as the end of the bracha is said properly. Now, the debate between the Shulchan Aruch and the Vilna Gaon has to do with the brachas before Shema. So it doesn't seem to have anything to do with our discussion, which has to do with the brachas of Shemona Esrei. But the Ber Halacha of the Mishnah Brura, when he discusses this debate and the view of the Vilna Gaon in Simen Nuntes, so he implies that the Vilna Gaon holds the same thing about the Shemona Esrei brachas. That so long as the end of the bracha is said properly, even if the beginning and the middle were incorrect, it's still a good, valid bracha. So now I don't remember if this is discussed, but it seems to me that the Vilna Gaon's view might also contradict Reb Chaim's idea. Because according to the Vilna Gaon, it's possible that the same Talumatar, which is in the middle of the bracha, cannot be a requirement because of the Matbeya of Chazal, because that's only the end of the brachas. At least the way the Be'er Halacha understands that the Vilna Gaon is referring to Shmona Esrei as well. So according to Rab Chaim's idea that Visein Talumatar is fundamental to the Shmona Esrei, that might contradict the Vilna Gaon's idea that only the Chasimas HaBracha, the end of the Bracha, are the fundamental parts. So that's another point worth reflecting on in terms of this approach of Rab Chaim. Now we'll go to the second short piece, which is in Chidush HaGracha Lashas. And this is just a one-liner, but there's actually a whole story behind it, which is related in Ishim Vishitos from Rev Zevin. In the new printings, it's on page 48-49, and the reason Rev Zevin quotes this story is to show how strong Rab Chaim's ability to explain things were, how sharp his formulations were. So he tells this story, which he thinks has a particularly sharp formulation, but even Rav Zevin got it from one of Rab Chaim's students, Rab Yehuda Leib Don Yechia. So he wrote a letter to Rav Zevin with this story in it. And now we have the letter printed in the new Chidusha Agrach Alashas from Mishor. So they added in a lot of new material. And on page 585, they quote two letters from Rab Yehuda Leib Don Yechia. One is about Rab Chaim and his unique characteristics and learning style. And the second describes his sheer in Valajan. So these are very nice, important letters. And in the first letter to Rav Zevin, he tells the story. The story is that one time a person forgot to daven Mariv on Saturday night. 
So the halacha is, as we said, there's tashlumin. The next morning, Sunday morning, you daven first shachris, and then a second shmona esrei for mariv of the night before. But this person wanted to know, when do they add in atachon antanu, the havdalah, to end Shabbos? Is it in the first Shemona Esrei or in the second one, which is actually Mariv? So they came to ask one of the rabbis in Brisk, and Rab Chaim was there, he was reading Shema, and Rab Yehuda Leib tells us an interesting thing, that Rab Chaim used to read Shema before davening because he was concerned that davening would come out after the time of Shema. So Rab Chaim would say the Shema earlier before he davened to make sure that he fulfilled the mitzvah of Shema. And then I guess later, it must have been somewhat late, he would then daven Shachris. So Rab Chaim was in the middle of saying Shema and this other rabbi got this question and he answered that the person should say Havdalah in the second Shemona Esrei, which makes logical sense because that's the Mariv. The first one is Shachris. And normally the Havdalah is said in Mariv, not in Shachris. So that was what the rabbi answered him. But Rab Chaim heard this answer and he started shaking his head that that's incorrect. And when he finished saying Shema, he explained to them that the person should say Atachon Antanu in the first Shemona Esrei of Shachris. And the way he explained this is because the reason we say Havdalah on Saturday night is not because it's Mariv. It has nothing to do with Mariv. It's because it's the first Shemona Esrei after Shabbos. So imagine if Sunday morning would come before Saturday night. So then you would say Havdalah in the Sunday Shachris, not in the Saturday night Mariv. And this man now has that exact situation where it's like Sunday morning showed up before Saturday night. So in the first Shemona Esrei of the week, which is the Sunday Shachris, he should include Havdalah. So that was Rab Chaim's ruling about this, that Havdalah is not recited in the Mariv Shemona Esrei. It's recited in the first Shemona Esrei of the week, whichever one that is. Normally it's obviously Mariv, but in this case, it would have been Sunday Shachris. So Rav Zebin is so taken with the sharpness of this formulation that Sunday arrived before Saturday night that he comments that this is the kind of sharpness that can't be recorded in writing. So anyone that's studying Rab Chaim from written material is missing the specific sharpness of his formulation because it can't be preserved in writing the way it was orally. So when Rab Chaim would give a shear or he would answer a question in person, he was able to formulate things in a much sharper, creative way than he was able to write them down. Now, in terms of the practical halacha, so this is a big debate. Even though Reb Kiva Eger and Reb Yaakov Emdin and the Tehidah Ledavid in Simen Reish Tzadi Dalif Sifkat and Aleph and the Shulchan Aruch HaRav also in Simen Reish Tzadi Dalid, so they all rule like Reb Chaim that Atachon Antanu should be said in the first Shemona Esrei of the week even though on Sunday morning it's going to be Shachris and Mariv is the second Shemona Esrei. But the Mishnah Brura in Simen Reish Tzadi Dalid Sifkat and Beis rules against all this and first of all he says that if the person are already made Havdalah on wine, they don't say Atachon Antanu in the morning at all. So let's say the person who didn't daven Mariv on Saturday night did make Havdalah on a cup of wine. So then in the morning, they totally skip Atachon Antanu, not in the first or second Shemona Esrei. But if they did not make Havdalah on wine, and he gives the example, let's say it's Tishabav on Sunday, so they did not make Havdalah the night before, and they also missed Mariv, so that person should include Atachon Antanu in the second Shemona Esrei, which is Mariv, not the first one, which is Shachris. So the Mishabura seems to hold that Atachon Antanu 
is connected with the Shmona Esrei of Mariv, not the way Rab Chaim and Reb Kiveager say it, that Atachon Antonu goes in the first Shmona Esrei of the week, whichever one that is. Now, I do wonder, according to Rab Chaim, let's say someone is very unpious, so they skip the Shmona Esreis on Saturday night and Sunday and Monday, and let's say Tuesday afternoon is the first Shmona Esrei of the week that they're saying. So is there any room to say, according to Rab Chaim, that they should include Atachon Antanu at that point? It sounds totally far-fetched and impossible, but it's unclear to me what the difference would be, according to Rab Chaim, if the first Shmona Esrei is Sunday morning versus Tuesday morning. Either way, that is the second brief idea from Rab Chaim that we'll discuss. Now, the third one has to do with repeating Shema. So we already just mentioned that in Rab Yehuda Leib Don Yechia's letter, he says that Rab Chaim would say Shema before he davened so that if he ended up davening after the time of Shema, he wouldn't have a problem. Now, it's also well known that Rab Chaim's son, Rab Velvel, had an unusual way of saying Shema. He would repeat the words over and over again until he felt that he had pronounced every single word properly. So this could take an extremely long amount of time, but Rab Velvel was very concerned about saying one of the words improperly and not fulfilling the mitzvah, so he would say the words over and over again until he felt comfortable with how he had said it. So that was an unusual way that he said Shema. You don't get the sense that Rab Chaim did that. Rab Chaim seems to have said Shema once, but there is an interesting tradition which is recorded by Rab Aaron Soloveitchik in his Sefer Perach Mata Aaron on the Rambam Sefer Ava. So on page 23, he quotes that he heard from his father, Rab Moshe, that Rab Chaim used to repeat Shema in the Sephardic pronunciation. So he would say it in the Ashkenazi way because he was a Lithuanian Ashkenazi Jew. And then he would repeat it in the Sephardic pronunciation because he was concerned that perhaps that's the proper way to pronounce Hebrew. And the key concern was the name of Hashem. So it wasn't so much the other words Rab Chaim was concerned with, but he was worried about saying the name of Hashem in Ashkenazi pronunciation. Maybe the Sephardic one is correct. So that's why he would repeat Shema in the Sephardic pronunciation. And then he tells a story about his father, Reb Moshe, building on this view of Rab Chaim that one time there were a bunch of Jewish soldiers in the Russian Tsarist army. So this was a big problem in those times that the army would take these Jewish boys and it was very hard, if not impossible, to live a Jewish life in the Russian army. So there were a lot of issues and tragedies and heroism with these Jewish boys trying to live a Jewish life in the Russian army. So a group of them asked Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, could they recite Shema in Russian? They probably didn't know Hebrew, so they wanted to say Shema in Russian. So Reb Moshe answered that that's certainly allowed. You can fulfill the mitzvah of Shema in a language other than Hebrew, so they could say it in Russian, but the names of Hashem, they have to say in Hebrew. So the names of Hashem cannot be said in any other language, and he adds that that's the same for all names, all proper nouns in the Shema, like Mitzrayim. You can't say Egypt, you have to say Mitzrayim. And the reason is because names cannot be translated. So the names and the proper nouns in the Shema have to be said in Hebrew, even though the other words can be said in other languages. And he adds that this only applies to Shema. But when it comes to Shemona Esrei or davening or benching, those things, all of it can be said in other languages, including the name of Hashem. Because when it comes to davening or benching, the halacha is that you have to communicate certain ideas, and those ideas can be communicated in any language. As opposed to Shema, 
Shema, which has a rule that it must be read as it is in the Torah. So even though the other words can be translated into other languages, but the names cannot. So those are two very interesting traditions that Rab Aaron Soloveitchik records from Rab Chaim and his father, Rab Moshe, that Rab Chaim would repeat the Shema in the Sephardic pronunciation. He wanted to get all possible pronunciations to get the right one. And Reb Moshe said that when it comes to Shema, the proper nouns must be recited in Hebrew, not in any other language. So the practices of Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel when it comes to Shema are in line with what we would expect from such towering Torah giants. But their practices when it came to davening more generally are actually very unusual and unexpected. Rab Yosef Dov calls it very strange. And that is that Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel would generally not daven with the minion. They would daven by themselves. In fact, Rab Chaim's house was basically open to everybody. There was almost no space that was reserved for Rab Chaim. He was a man totally immersed in chesed and everything he had, all his resources, his home, everything was given to the community and anyone that needed. The one thing that Rab Chaim wanted was his area for davening. So that was the only space that he required to be able to daven. So we see that he used to mostly daven in his own house. And it's also clear that Rab Velvel did that. In the Sefer Uvdos Van Hagos from Rabbi Meller about Rab Velvel, in volume three, page 165, he reports that Rab Velvel would daven by himself. And in the Sefer Ele Batamar from Rab Aaron Leib Steinman, who comes from Brisk. So in the volume on Brisk, he also mentions that Rab Velvel would daven by himself. Now, the reason for this seems to be, and this is what Rabbi Meller says, and this is what Rabbi Yosef dove in the work, The Rav, Volume 1. The way they explain it is because Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel were learning. They didn't want to take off time to go to davening. It takes a lot of time from a person's day. So they would just daven wherever they were in order to be able to learn and maximize their time for learning. Now, Rabbi Yosef dove in this piece actually says that he shifted away from the family tradition. And his son-in-law, Rab Aaron Lichtenstein, in a piece called Hatfila B'Mishnas Hagrid Salavechik, the notion of davening according to Rab Yosef Dov, which was published in 1999 and it's available online. So he identifies that this shift happened in the late 50s or so. So Rab Yosef Dov would have been almost 60. So for the majority of his life, he really followed the family tradition of davening in private. But at that point, he made a decision Decision to leave that legacy and he shifted to really trying to daven with a minion. And he writes beautifully about this as he always does. I realize today that praying alone and praying with the community are like two different forms of prayer. Praying alone takes a lot less time and I do not experience the same depth of emotion as when I pray with the community. You should be very careful to pray with a minion. So interestingly, Rabbi Yosef Dov actually shifted the family tradition even though Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel and Rabbi Yosef Dov in his early years wouldn't hesitate to daven by themselves, but then he came to think that there was a lot of importance to davening with the minion. Whereas Rabbi Chaim and Rabbi Velvel were always comfortable davening by themselves. And again, this is a reflection of the tremendous importance they ascribed to Torah study over davening. The way Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein says, Bim Soros Beis Valozhin Ubrisk, 
In the tradition of Valojin and Brisk, the role of davening was quite low as compared with other ways of serving Hashem, specifically the study of Torah. And we'll see later in this recording that this is part of a larger shift on Rabbi Yosef Dov's part, not only to davening with the minion, but really to seeing the role of davening as a fundamental form of serving and connecting to Hashem, almost on par with the study of Torah. So either way, Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel, who had the Valojan and Brisker worldview that Torah is more important than davening, so they did not take the time to go study with the minion. They would pray by themselves. And obviously this has very little to do with most of us who do not spend all our day studying and thinking about Torah. So we should certainly daven with the minion. Now, related to this, there is another tradition that Rab Chaim would daven very quickly. So he would say the Shemona Esrei incredibly fast. And this is also recorded in Rabbi Meller's book in volume three, page 164. Now, obviously there's some discomfort with this because it's again, not what we would expect from someone of Rab Chaim's caliber. So Rabbi Meller tries to soften the blow and he quotes that Rab Velvel said that this was part of Rab Chaim's great genius that he could daven so quickly and still have proper kavana, whereas the rest of us couldn't do that. If we daven that quickly, then we wouldn't be paying attention to what we're saying. So this is a way to try to explain away what Rab Chaim's saying because they're uncomfortable with it. Now, he also quotes a cute line that Rab Chaim had about this. Someone once had the chutzpah to ask Rab Chaim why he davens so quickly. The poskim say that you should daven slowly and recite each word like someone who's counting money. So you should cherish each word like someone counts a coin slowly. So Rab Chaim answered very cutely that they should see how fast he counts coins. He counts coins incredibly fast, so that's why he davens incredibly fast. But either way, this was the practice of Rab Chaim to daven very quickly. I once heard that it might connect with Rab Chaim's piece in Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, where he says that a person davening has to always be aware that they're standing in front of Hashem. So Rab Chaim was worried about losing that awareness for even one second, and that would disqualify the whole Shemona Esrei. So that's why he would zoom through the davening. But I can't find that in print, and there's also problems with that tradition because why should someone of Rab Chaim's caliber not be able to think about standing in front of Hashem for four or five minutes? So either way, those are Rab Chaim's practices that he would daven mostly in private and very, very quickly. Now, Reb Velvel would daven in private, but he would not daven quickly. So as we said, his Shema took an incredibly long amount of time and his Shemona Esrei was not quite that long, but he would say it very slowly when he was davening privately. And that's part of the reason Reb Velvel didn't really daven with the minion because it would have been very hard for him to daven the way he liked and to say all the words slowly and with proper intention and to repeat the words of Shema over and over again with other people around. So that was part of his motivation for davening in private. But Rabbi Meller points out very importantly that when Rabbi Velvel would lead the davening, so let's say he had a yortzite or something, so then he would daven like anyone else, totally regular. He wouldn't repeat anything. He wouldn't do any of his unusual practices. So even though Rabbi Velvel had all sorts of unusual practices, but he wasn't rigid. He was flexible and he was able to adjust accordingly and certainly not to waste everybody else's time and make the minion uncomfortable for people because of his unusual stringencies. And another sign of Reb Velvel's lack of rigidity, his flexibility, is that his father used to daven quickly, whereas he would take a long time in his davening. So we see it wasn't just that he was mimicking his father, but he was really thinking each thing through what was the right way for him to come closer to Hashem. So 
So those are some of Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel's unique practices when it comes to davening. Now, their overall style to daven privately, there was one major exception to this, which was when it came to the reading of the Torah on Mondays, Thursdays, and Shabbos. So most people consider the reading of the Torah to be either on par with going to a minion. So let's say they try to go to a minion generally, they try to get there on Monday and Thursday to hear the Torah reading. But most people don't see reading the Torah as more important than davening with the minion overall. Reb Chaim, on the other hand, held that the obligation of reading the Torah is an obligation that each person has that can only be fulfilled in a minion. So when it comes to davening with the minion, the obligation can either be done privately or it's better to do it with the minion. But one can daven by themselves and fulfill the mitzvah of davening. As opposed to reading the Torah on Monday, Thursdays, and Shabbos, which can only be done with the minion. So ironically, Rab Chaim was very strict about having a minion for Torah reading, even if he didn't have a minion for davening. So let's say he was traveling on the train or something, he would specifically get off at some point, get together a minion, even if it was the middle of the day, and start reading the Torah, even if he had davened by himself. So Rab Chaim was very strict about always hearing the reading of the Torah together with the minion. So this practice that a lot of people have, that sometimes if there's no minion in the morning, or if they missed the reading of the Torah, they'll get a minion together right before Mincha and read the Torah, that really comes from Rab Chaim. And we have a good number of stories where Rab Chaim did something like this. In the Sidor from Rabavram Landau, the Czech Navarov. So in the new printing on page 455, he tells a story that he was with Rab Chaim and there was no minion on Monday morning. And then later in the day at Mincha, they had a minion and Rab Chaim said to take out the Torah and read at that point because Rab Chaim said that reading the Torah is not connected to Shachris. It's connected to the day of Monday. There's supposed to be a reading that day so it could be done at any time. And he quotes that Rab Chaim's not the first person to give this ruling. It's also in the Chuvis of Maria Sad in Arachaim Simon Nun Aleph. So it maybe didn't originate with Rab Chaim, but he certainly popularized it. In the Sefer Nefsharav on page 130, he tells that Rab Chaim's grandson, Rab Yosef Dov, many times he would be traveling from Boston to teach at YU in New York. So he would leave on Monday morning and he would miss davening with the minion. So at Mincha that day, they would bring out a Torah and they would read the Torah, again, in line with his grandfather, Rab Chaim's view. Now, there's an interesting story in this regard that comes from Chabad sources. So this is in the Sefer Chazon Nachum, and it's also reprinted in Piskei Tshuva, but it's all quoted in the Sefer Asufos Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi on page 195, that Rabbi Avram Chaim Na'eh, the great Chabad Posek, was once in Warsaw, and someone came over to him in the afternoon and asked, did you hear laning that morning? So he said that he had not, and the person asked him to go to where Rab Chaim was staying because they were going to be reading the Torah. So we'll come back to this point that he seems to have been trying to collect 10 men who had not yet heard the laning. Either way, Rab Avram Chaim Noah went to this later minion where they were reading the Torah for Rab Chaim. And Rab Chaim was a levy, so he got the second aliyah. And Rab Avram Chaim Noah reported that every time Rab Chaim said the name of Hashem, he shook. 
and there's six names of Hashem in the blessings of the Torah, and Rab Chaim shook all those times. So that gives us a glimpse of Rab Chaim's great piety and his outstanding fear of heaven. Now, in Asufus Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, he quotes from Rabbi Avram Chaim Na'a an interesting point that he quotes that the Mabit in his Sefer Beis Elohim writes that from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu until the Ansheik Nessus Agedola at the beginning of the second Beis Hamikdash, this was actually what they all used to do. They would only get together for reading the Torah because Moshe Rabbeinu instituted the reading of the Torah, but the Mabit assumes that there was no davening in the form that we know it until the Ansheik Nessus Agedola created the Siddur. So what did they do for those hundreds of years? There was no Shachris. So when did they read the Torah? So the Mabit says that they all used to do it the way Rab Chaim would. Everyone would daven privately or do whatever they did privately. And then later they would get together only for the reading of the Torah. So that was the original institution of reading the Torah. It was not connected to davening the way we think of it now, but it was a standalone ritual. Now, Rab Chaim's very close student, Rab Baruch Ber, in the Birkas Shmuel, on Yevamos Simen Chaf Aleph. So he quotes that Rab Chaim added something else to this whole discussion, which is when it comes to Chazara Sashatz, the repetition of the Shmona Esrei, the reading of the Torah, and the reading of the Megillah. So all three of those things require a minion. But Rab Chaim was unsure, do they require 10 men who have not yet heard the reading of the Torah, the Megillah, or Chazar Sashatz, or it's enough to have six, a majority? In general, when there's a requirement for a minion, it only means a majority of people who need to do this commandment, not all 10. Because Rubo Kikulo, once there's a majority, it's like there's 10 who need to do the mitzvah. But Rab Chaim was not sure whether those three mitzvahs require only six men who have to do the mitzvah or all 10. And the basis for this is, is the minion a requirement in the ritual? Meaning reading the Torah requires a minion. So then it would require a full minion of 10 men who have to read the Torah. Or is it an obligation on each person, but they need a minion in order to do the obligation. So then as long as there's six men who have to do the obligation and there's 10 men overall together, then they could go ahead and do it. So basically this issue that Rab Chaim's raising, whether the obligation of reading the Torah is on an individual level or on a communal level, also affects whether there have to be 10 men who have to hear the reading of the Torah or only six. If it's an obligation on each individual, then it only requires six. But if it's an obligation on the whole community, on the minion, so then it requires a full 10 men who have to hear the reading of the Torah. So it actually seems that Rab Chaim was not sure how the halacha is, so he was stringent in both regards. He would make sure to hear the minion himself because possibly it was an individual obligation, but he also preferred to have 10 men who had not yet heard the reading of the Torah. And he quotes that the Chaye Adam in Klal Lamed Aleph Sif Yud Aleph is unsure on this point whether reading the Torah requires a full 10 men who have not yet heard the reading of the Torah or not. 
So now there seems to have been some debate over this issue between Rab Chaim and his mechutin, Rab Elia Feinstein Prejiner, who was the father-in-law of Rab Moshe Soloveitchik. But it's unclear what Rab Elia Prejiner was exactly disagreeing with. In the Sefer Asufus, Rabbi Nuchaim Alevi, he quotes a version that Rab Elia Prejiner disagreed with Rab Chaim that you might need 10 men who didn't hear the Torah reading in order to have a minion for Torah reading. He held that you only need six who didn't hear the Torah reading and then four others even if they heard the reading of the Torah that day already. So that was the point they were disagreeing about. In the Sefer Nefesh HaRav, he quotes the debate differently that Rab Elia Prejiner held that the obligation of Torah reading is on the communal level, not on each individual. So if someone's on a train and they don't have a minion, they do not need to get off and find a minion to read the Torah. It's only an obligation if there are 10 men on a Monday and a Thursday and a Shabbos, then they need to gather together and read the Torah. So either way, there was some debate between Rab Chaim and Rab Elia Prejiner. And Rab Elia Prejiner quoted a Ran in Megillah, quoting a Ramban, which says explicitly like his view. So Rab Chaim said, no, no, that's not the way to interpret the Ran. And he reinterpreted it in a way that fit in with his view. So that's the overall story. Now, again, there's different versions of this story. In Asufis Rabbi Nochaim Alevi, he quotes that there's another tradition that this was a different mechutin of Rab Chaim. It wasn't Rab Elia Prejiner. It was his daughter's father-in-law, the father of Rab Hirsch Glickson. So that's another variation of the story. He also quotes another additional point that Rab Chaim said, it's not that I'm an expert in every Ran. In other words, it's not that I've already thought about how to interpret every Ran, but the reason I knew that the Ran could not have answered this question question is because the Chaye Adam, who's accepted as one of the greatest poskim of the Jewish people, would not have made a mistake asking a question that's easily resolved by the Ran. So Rab Chaim, because of that ideological idea, believed that there's no way the Ran could have answered this question and there must be another way to interpret it. Now, interestingly, the Mishnah Brura in the Be'er Halacha in Simen Kufmem Gimel does quote this Ran to resolve the question of the Chaye Adam. So again, the Chaye Adam wonders whether it's enough to have six men who didn't hear the Torah reading for Kriyas Torah, or you need all ten. And the Ran quotes the Ramban as saying that it's enough to have a majority. So the Be'er Halacha does resolve the question of the Chaye Adam from this explicit Ramban. And in Asufis Rabbi Nuchayim Alevi, he quotes a tradition from Rab Michal Yehuda Lefkowitz that he heard from Rab Ruven Katz, the Rav of Petach Tikva, that he was there or he knew of this moment when the Chavetz Chaim was writing his Sefer and he came to the question of the Chaye Adam and Reb Moshe Landinsky, who was the Rosh Hashiva in Radin, he was the one that showed the Chavetz Chaim this proof from the Ran that resolves this question. So the Chavetz Chaim does quote the proof from a Gadol Echad. So that's a reference to Reb Moshe Landinsky. So the Chavetz Chaim does not quote contemporaries in the Mishnah Brura, except for one place where he quotes Reb Meir Simcha of Dvinsk. So that's why he puts this anonymously. Either way, we have an interesting debate according to this, that Reb Chaim held that if the Chaye Adam couldn't resolve his question, it cannot be that it's easily resolved by an explicit Ran. And the Chavetz Chaim didn't have such qualms. He believed that it's possible to resolve the question of the Chaye Adam 
from this explicit Ron. So that's a very interesting debate. Now, the version in Nefesh Arav, as we mentioned, is different. According to this version, Reb Elia Perjiner disagreed with Reb Chaim because he held that Kriya Satora is an obligation on the minion, not on each individual. So according to this, he also brought a proof from this same Ron, and it was actually his grandson, Reb Yosef Dov, who brought that proof from his mother's father to his father's father. So he had these two great-grandfathers who had this debate, and he was the messenger back and forth. And then he reports that when Rabbi Yosef Dov brought back Rab Chaim's answer, his rereading of the Ran, back to his other grandfather, so Rabbi Elia Prejiner just dismissed it. He said, that's Rab Chaim being a brisker. That's how he does it, meaning he didn't feel like he takes it literally enough. So this is a cute little tradition showing how Rab Elia Prejiner, an old world Rav, trained in the classical methods of learning, had some discomfort with Rab Chaim's new brisker method of analysis that he thought sometimes they insert new ideas into these sources instead of just reading them literally. Either way, that was the debate between Rab Chaim and Rab Elia Prejiner, whether the obligation of Kriya Satora is on each individual or on the minion on the communal level. And the Mishnah Brura in the Ber Halacha and Simen Kuf Mem Vav, the Ramaschal Vyesh Matirin, so he writes explicitly like Rab Elia Prejiner that there is no obligation on each person to hear the reading of the Torah. It's on the minion as a whole. So we see that the Mishnah Brura has a different view of this whole concept than Rab Chaim because as we quoted from Rab Baruch Ber, Rab Chaim felt that if the obligation of Kriya Satora is on the minion, so then there have to be 10 people who did not hear laning yet. Whereas according to the Ber Halacha, the obligation is on the minion, not on each individual, and yet it's still enough to only have six people who didn't hear the laning. So the Mishnah Brura has a totally different framework for this whole halacha than Rab Chaim. But either way, this is Rab Chaim's approach and one of his important ideas when it comes to laning, that it's an obligation on each individual. And because of that, Rab Chaim would go to great lengths to make sure that he found a minion of people in order to be able to read the Torah, as opposed to the standard mainstream view that the obligation of Kriya Satora is on a minion, and if someone does not have a minion, then they're not obligated to go find one in order to do the mitzvah of Kriya Satora. So this is another important point from Rab Chaim. Now, on the topic of Tfila B'tzibor, davening with a minion, so there's another important story recorded from Reb Moshe Soloveitchik and Reb Chaim. This is recorded in Asufus Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi on page 19, quoting from the Sefer Azikaron Eish Tamid. One time, Reb Moshe Soloveitchik showed up in Shul late. So he had missed Shachris, and by the time he caught up, he was getting to the point where he would be saying the Shemona Esrei of Shachris when the minion was getting to Musaf. So Reb Moshe was unclear. Should he daven the Shemona Esrei of Musaf with everybody else, or should he continue davening Shachris together while the minion was davening Musaf? So he decided to daven Musaf with them. Now, the issue is that there's a rule of smichus geula letfila. You have to say the Shemona Esrei right after the bracha of Gal Yisrael. 
But Reb Moshe felt that it doesn't have to be specifically the Shemona Esrei of Shachris. So any Shemona Esrei that a person says right after Gal Yisrael is enough to fulfill that rule. So Reb Moshe did something very unusual. He said the bracha of Gal Yisrael and then he went right into Musaf in order to get Tefillah B'Tzibor with the minion that was davening Musaf. And in terms of Gal Yisrael and the Shemona Esrei, it was good enough that he davened a Shemona Esrei, even though it was not Shemona Esrei of Shachris, it was Shemona Esrei of Musaf. Now, he told Rab Chaim what he had done, and Rab Chaim agreed that what he had done was right, but Rab Chaim said you also could have davened Shachris when they were davening Musaf. And that would have still been considered Tefillah B'Tzibor. So Rab Chaim said both are correct. One could daven Musaf right after Gal Yisrael, or one could daven Shachris with the minion davening Musaf, and they would still be considered davening with the minion. And Rab Chaim brings a proof to this from the Gemara in Brachos Chaf Aleph, which he analyzes in the third piece in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi. The Gemara says that if someone daven privately, and then they come into a shul, and they see that there's a minion davening, and they want to now daven again, even though they already fulfilled their obligation in order now to daven with a minion. So the Gemara says if they're able to add something new to their davening, then they can say another Shemona Esrei. That's what's called a Tfilas Nedava, a voluntary Shemona Esrei, as opposed to obligatory. Says Rab Chaim, this guy is davening Tfilas Nedava, an optional davening, and the minion is davening an obligatory davening. So how is he part of the minion? So we see from here that even if someone is davening something different than the rest of the minion, they're still considered part of the minion. So davening shachris when the minion is davening musaf or the other way is still considered tefillah b'tzibor that the person is part of the minion. Now in terms of practically, so the Magen Avram in Simen Sadi Sifkat and Yudzayin seems to disagree with Reb Chaim. He has a proof from the Gemara Navodazara Daf Dalid that that would not be considered davening with the minion, although he's not totally sure, and he says there's possibly another way to interpret the Gemara, whereas the Mishnah Brura in Simen Sadi Sifkat and Lamed agrees with Rab Chaim's viewpoint. So there is some discussion about this question of whether davening Musaf when the minion is davening Shachris is considered Tefillah B'Tzibor. Now, the next idea that we'll look at is quoted in the name of Rab Chaim, but as we'll see, there's some questions whether Rab Chaim came up with this idea. So it's quoted in a sefer called Maore Sha'arim on page 285 which is written by Reb Leib Gerwitz, who was the Rosh Shiva of Gateshead in England. And his series on Gemara is called Roshe Sha'arim, which is cute because in Hebrew that means head of gates, Gateshead. But this is a different sefer called Maore Sha'arim, and there he quotes this idea in the name of Rab Chaim. Now, in Asufis Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, he points out that there's a more complicated lineage to this idea. So Rab Chaim actually quoted it in the name of the Aruch Laner, but it didn't actually even come from the Aruch Laner. It actually came from a rabbi, Mayor Leib Labavel of Krakow, and he published this phenomenal insight in the Aruch Laner's Torah journal, Shomer Tzion HaNeman. So from there, somehow it came to Rab Chaim, and that's how it got attributed to Rab Chaim and the Aruch Laner, but it actually came from this rabbi, Mayor Leib of Krakow. Now, in the Brisker Haggadah, it quotes that someone told this insight to Rab Velvel, and Rab Velvel said, I didn't hear it from my father, but it sounds like something he would have said. So this is very much in the line and style of Rab Chaim, and Rab Shlomo Berman, who was the son-in-law of the Stipler, also quotes a variation of this idea in his Sefer, Asher 
Shlomo in the name of Rab Chaim. So this idea made it into the corpus of Rab Chaim's ideas, and it's very much in line with his overall style, and it's a phenomenal insight, so I'm including it in this recording. The tour rules in Simon Reish Ches that when someone makes an Alhamichya on Shabbos and Yantif, they should include mention of Shabbos and Yantif in the Alhamichya. Now, this comes from Yerushalmi, which is quoted by Tosos and Brachos Memdalad Amad Aleph, but the Yerushalmi doesn't say where in Alhamichya to include Shabbos and Yantif. The tour says that it should be included before Kiata Hashem Tovu Metiv. Now, that's the line which is a reflection of the fourth bracha of benching. The Alhamichya is a condensed, summarized version of the four brachas of benching. And that line is the fourth bracha of Hatovu Metiv. So the tour says to add in Shabbos and Yantif before the fourth bracha. So the question is, in benching, we don't say Yala Viyavo or Ritzay. We don't mention Shabbos or Yantif before the fourth bracha. We mention it in the third bracha, before we make the third bracha. So why is Alhamichya different that we mention it before the fourth bracha, not in the third bracha? Second question is, why don't we mention Hanukkah and Purim in Alhamichya, even though we mention them in Benching? So we only mention Shabbos and Rosh Chodesh and Yantif in Alhamichya, not Hanukkah and Purim. So what's the difference between Alhamichya and Benching? So Reb Chaim, and as we explained, it was really someone else. But the answer to all this is based on a comment of Rabbeinu Yonah in Brachos Chavtes. And the basic principle that emerges from Rabbeinu Yonah is that we only include things in Alhamichya which are their own separate bracha. We're not going to include anything that's in the benching which is not a bracha. The Alhamichya is specifically a summary of the brachas in the benching. So if so, how are we including Ritzay or Yala Viyavo? Those are not separate brachas. They're additions to the third bracha of benching. So the answer is because if someone forgets to include Ritzay or Yala Viyavo and they finish the third bracha, but they're between the third and the fourth bracha, so then they do mention Shabbos and Yantif as an independent bracha. There are separate brachas to be said at that point. So since Shabbos and Yantif could be included in the benching as a separate bracha, that's why it's included in Alhamichya. So that answers why in the Alhamichya it's included after the third bracha, not in the third bracha, because in the Alhamichya we're basing it on the bracha of Shabbos and Yantif, not Ritzay and Yalaviyavo. So that's why it has to be between the third and the fourth bracha in the Alhamichya. Now, this also answers very simply why we don't include Hanukkah and Purim in the Alhamichya, because those could never be a separate bracha. If you forget Alhanisim, you don't make a separate bracha, so that's why they could never be in the Alhamichya like Shabbos and Yantif. Now, based on this, he adds a phenomenal point. There is a debate between the Tur and the Rambam whether to mention Rosh Chodesh in Alhamichya. So it's clear that Shabbos and Yantif are in Alhamichya. But what about Rosh Chodesh? So the tour includes Rosh Chodesh in Alhamichya, and the Rambam does not. It sounds like only Shabbos and Yantif are mentioned in Alhamichya, not Rosh Chodesh. 
So now we could explain this debate beautifully because the Rambam also holds that if someone forgets Yala Yavo on Rosh Chodesh, they do not add another bracha in the benching. Whereas the tour holds in the name of his father, the Rush, that if someone forgets Yala Yavo on Rosh Chodesh, they do add a bracha between the third and fourth brachas, just like Shabbos and Yantif. So now very beautifully, because the tour holds that Rosh Chodesh could get its own bracha in benching, that's why it's included in al Whereas the Rambam disagrees and holds that Rosh Chodesh is like Hanukkah and Purim, it never has its own bracha in benching, therefore it's not included in al So this is a phenomenal insight and it fits so beautifully into these sources. So these are some of Rab Chaim's ideas about concepts and issues of davening. And now we'll just throw in a few very brief rulings that he has. There is a very interesting letter in Asufus Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi on page 28 that Rab Chaim wrote to another Rav. The Rav had written to him to ask him whether or not they could have a chuppah, a wedding in the shul building. So we don't have very many letters from Rab Chaim at all. In the new version of Chidusha Grachal Ashas from Mishor, so they do include a couple of letters that Rab Chaim wrote, but most of them are much more theoretical, the way Rab Chaim generally studied. So even the few letters that we have from Rab Chaim, most of them are not tshuvas in practical halacha. But this is the exception. This is actually a practical ruling from Rab Chaim about whether one can have a chuppah in the shul. And Rab Chaim says definitely not. It's prohibited to have a party in the shul, which is a sanctified building. And then he adds that, in fact, you shouldn't have a chuppah indoors at all, because the Ramah says that the custom is to do the chuppah outdoors, and everyone should follow the custom. So needless to say, most people today do not follow that custom. Chuppahs are almost always indoors, not outside. So that goes against the Ramah's custom and Rab Chaim's preference. But in this letter, we see some of Rab Chaim's real right-wingerness about how strongly he defends the customs of the Jewish people and does not allow a chuppah and a shul or even indoors at all. So it's an interesting letter and a practical halacha from Rab Chaim. Now, there's another very important ruling from Rab Chaim, which is quoted by his grandson, Rab Yosef Dov, in Shi'urim Lezecher Abamari, Chelek Aleph, page 136. And that is about putting on tefillin on Chol HaMoed. So this is a raging debate. The Shulchan Aruch says not to wear tefillin on Chol HaMoed. And the Ramah disagrees and says yes to. Now the Vilna Gaon agrees with the Shulchan Aruch and said not to put tefillin on. And that was the custom in the Valajan Yeshiva based on the Vilna Gaon not to wear tefillin on Chol HaMoed. Now Reb Chaim also did not wear tefillin on Chol HaMoed. But it's reported that Reb Moshe asked him, why are we not stringent? even if the Vilna Gon said not to wear tefillin on Chol HaMoed, but since it's a debate, so we might as well be stringent and put the tefillin on. There's no harm to putting the tefillin on on Chol HaMoed. So Rab Chaim answered him, the reason I don't put tefillin on Chol HaMoed is not because of the Valazhin Yeshiva and the Vilna Gon. It's because of my own view on the topic that Chol HaMoed is exempt from tefillin. And this is the way Rab Chaim formulated it. Cholamoed is as sanctified as Yantif itself, but there's a heter malacha. You're allowed to do work on Cholamoed, but it doesn't change the sanctity of the day. And the reason we don't wear tefillin on Shabbos and Yantif is because they're sanctified, not because they're prohibited in Malacha, but because they're holy days. So that applies equally to Cholamoed, which is also a holy day. 
So even though it's allowed to do malacha, but since it's a holy day, we don't wear tefillin. So this is a very interesting approach from Rab Chaim. And Rab Yosef Dov in that piece builds on this, that according to Rab Chaim, it's not that Cholamoed is a lesser holy day, and that's why you're allowed to work. It's the same level holiness as Shabbos and Yantif, except there's a heter malacha. There's a leniency to go ahead and do work on this holy day. So it's a very important conceptual formulation from Rab Chaim about the nature of Chol HaMoed. And again, Rab Yosef Dov develops it, but it's interesting to compare it with the Vilna Gaon. The reason the Vilna Gaon believes that there's no obligation of tefillin on Chol HaMoed is because there's a mitzvah of yantif on those days which takes the place, so to speak, of tefillin. So on Pesach, there's a mitzvah to eat matzah, and this connects with the Vilna Gon's famous idea that there's a mitzvah to eat the matzah all the days of Pesach, even during Cholamoed. And on Sukkot, there's a mitzvah of eating in the sukkah. So since there's these technical mitzvahs, we don't need another mitzvah on that day of tefillin. Whereas Rab Chaim is formulating this much more conceptually, not a practical issue of what mitzvahs we do on that day, but an issue of the sanctity of the day. The tefillin are only obligatory on a mundane day. But a day that's sanctified is exempt from tefillin. And this goes to the heart and soul of what the status of the days of Cholamoed are. So as usual, Rab Chaim always see things conceptually. And here that leads to a practical halacha not to wear tefillin on Cholamoed. So now we'll go to two brief rulings from Reb Moshe Soloveitchik. In that same piece in Shurim Lezecher Abamari on page 130, he quotes another ruling from his father, Reb Moshe, which is the Chaye Adam quotes a very surprising ruling of Reb Avila Pasveler, who was one of the great Dayanim and Rabbanim in Vilna. So he ruled that if someone forgets to say HaMelech HaKadosh on the first night of Rosh Hashanah, they do not need to repeat the Shmona Esrei. Because it's the same as Rosh Chodesh, where if you forget Yala Yavo at night, you do not repeat the Shmona Esrei. So he said that Rosh Hashanah works the same way because they would not sanctify the day at night, only in the morning. So the night was not really Rosh Hashanah. So if someone forgets to say HaMelech HaKadosh that first night, they do not need to repeat the Shmona Esrei. Now, this is a very difficult and surprising ruling. There's a lot of problems with it. And the Mishnabrura in Simon Tuf Kuf Pei Beis already disagrees with it. And Rabbi Yosef Dov quotes that his father, Reb Moshe, also said not to rely on Reb Abela's ruling. And that's not surprising. The Piske Chuvis in Simen Tuf Kuf Pei Beis Os Gimel quotes a long list of poskim who say not to follow the view of Reb Abela Pasveler. Although he does quote that Reb Shlomo HaKohen in the Chuvis Binyan Shlomo. So he was a later Rav in Vilna. He was the great grandfather of Reb Nochem Parchovitz from the Mir, as well as Reb Moshe Feinstein in Igros Moshe Chelek Aleph Simen Kuf Ayin did defend the view of Reb Abala. Although they raised the issue whether one can rely on this the second night of Rosh Hashanah as well, or it's only the first. So there's a lot to say about this. Reb Shlomo Feivel in his Sefer Rishbe Eish in Simen Hay also analyzes this. But either way, Reb Moshe Soloveitchik is on record as agreeing with the view of the Mishnabrura and those poskim not to rely on the view of Reb Abala. Now, Reb Moshe had another 
opinion about the davening of the Yamim Noraim, but the first one was at the very beginning, the first night of Rosh Hashanah, and this one is at the very end at Neila on Yom Kippur. So this is quoted in the Sefer Nefsharav on page 200. The Rambam describes Neila, which is the special fifth davening that we only say on Yom Kippur, as Lahosif Tchina Ubakosha Mipnehatanis, as a davening to add prayers and requests on the day of the fast. So Reb Moshe said based on this that Neila has to be an additional prayer. Meaning the person said the three davenings of the day, Shachris, Mincha, and Musaf, and now they're adding an additional prayer. But let's say someone slept the whole day of Yom Kippur, and then they wake up in the late afternoon, so they haven't davened Shachris, Mincha, or Musaf, they haven't davened anything that day, and all they want to now daven is Neila. So Reb Moshe said they can't do that because it's not an additional prayer. So this would actually be a big problem. There are a good number of people, some secular Jews, who only show up for Ne'ilah, or maybe they come for Kol Nidre and then Ne'ilah, but according to Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, that would be a problem because they have to daven all the Shemona Esrays of Yom Kippur in addition to Ne'ilah. You can't just daven Ne'ilah. Now, Reb Moshe wasn't sure what davenings do you need to say before you daven Ne'ilah. Is it enough to only daven once? So let's say someone said Shachris, but not Musaf or Min. Can they go ahead and daven Ne'ilah because it's in addition to their Shachris? Or do you need to have davened everything? Shachris, Mincha, Musaf, Mariv the night before, all the davenings of Yom Kippur, and only then you can say Ne'ilah. So Reb Moshe was not sure, but Reb Yosef Dov assumed that you have to daven all the davenings. So again, this would be a problem for many people. Sometimes women don't daven Mincha or Musaf or whatever it is, and then they come for Ne'ilah. And according to Reb Yosef Dov, that could be a problem because they didn't daven everything else. So now we'll move on to Reb Yosef Dov's ideas about davening. And these are much more philosophical and conceptual ideologically than the more technical halachas and details that we just discussed from Rab Chaim. So the first theme that we'll touch on is one of Reb Yosef Dov's big themes when it comes to davening. And this is quoted in Nefesh Arav on page 199. And he connects it with the idea about Ne'i that we just mentioned. The Ramah rules that whoever davens slichos should daven the rest of the davenings of that day. The idea being that someone who begins a mitzvah should complete it. So the person who started slichos should complete the rest of the davenings of that day and lead all of them. So the Chuvas Binyan Shlomo that we just mentioned in Simon Lamed Zion asks, what does slichos have anything to do with the rest of the davenings of the day? We don't say that someone who davens Shachris should also lead Mincha and Mariv that day because Shachris is over. Mincha and Mariv are a different mitzvah. So the same thing is true of slichos. Slichos is one mitzvah. Shachris, Mincha, Mariv are different mitzvahs. So why does one person have to do all of them? So Rabbi Yosef Dov answered very brilliantly that it's true, that Shachris and Musaf and Mincha and Mariv are each different mitzvahs. They're not connected. But slichos is a different type of mitzvah. It's an introduction to the davenings of the day. So it's not a separate davening. It's not separate from Shachris, Mincha, and Mariv. It's an intro to the prayers of that day. So if someone would only say the slichos and then not daven, and this could happen, sometimes people say the slichos on Saturday night, but they might not daven the next day on Sunday, so that person hasn't accomplished much. Because the whole point of the slichos is to reinforce and charge the davening of the day. 
So that's why the slichos is connected with the rest of the davening, and whoever led the slichos should also lead shachras mincha and mariv, which are a completion of those slichos. There's some question which mariv, or if mariv is even part of this, because mariv of the next day really belongs to the next day. But aside from that, shachras and mincha, and possibly one of the marivs, either the day before or the day after, are connected to this slichos. So according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, it's similar to Ne'ilah in that Ne'ilah builds on the davening of the day and the slichos is the preparation for the davenings of that day. So this is a very nice approach to explain the ruling of the Ramah. But this is also one of Rabbi Yosef Dov's big philosophical ideas that when we daven, sometimes there's a davening preceding the davening. We don't just jump into the davening because if you think about it, davening is a very scary thing. How does a human being just approach the almighty God of heaven and earth? How does a mere small human being have the audacity to start speaking to the king of kings, to the almighty? So Rabbi Yosef Dov said that there are certain prayers that only prepare us for the real prayer. There's a prayer about our prayer. We ask that we should have the words to be able to express ourselves. We ask that we should have the strength to be able to daven. Like Psuke de Zimra is a good example. It's a preparation for the Shachris davening. We say all these Tehillim in order to be ready to say Shachris. So the idea is that we're not just ready to roll out of bed and go straight into Shachris, but we need to get permission, so to speak, in order to be able to enter the world of prayer and the way to do that is through the Psuke de Zimra. Or likewise, before we say Shemona Esrei, we begin with Hashem Sefasai Tiftach, which is a prayer that our prayer of Shemona Esrei should be successful. So we pray about our Shemona Esrei before we dare to utter the words of Shemona Esrei. So it's not so simple that a human being can just start speaking to Hashem. A person needs to earn that right, so to speak, and to pray to be able to have the ability to do so. And this is a very powerful reminder of the power of prayer, the importance, the centrality of prayer. A lot of us just mumble off the words, but someone who's really thinking about what these words mean understands that it's scary. It's not so simple that we're able to just say it and speak to the Almighty, the King of Kings. We need permission. We need success. And in fact, ironically, we need God's help in order to be able to speak to Him. So we have a prayer in order to be able to pray. So this is a very powerful idea. Rabbi Yosef Dov applies a similar idea also to the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, which he calls a wordless prayer. The idea being that we sort of throw our hands up and give up and we say we can't articulate in words all the things that we need. So we're going to have a wordless prayer blowing the shofar and that hopefully will penetrate the heavens and get us what we need because it's too hard for us to predict what it is exactly that we need to pray. So again, Rabbi Yosef Dov has a very good insight into the power of prayer and the scariness of prayer in a way that most of us don't, but you get the feeling that he has the experience of standing in front of the Almighty and speaking to the King of Kings, and he's trying to make sense of what gives a human being, what allows a puny, small, mere flesh and blood to be able to do such an audacious thing. So this is a very nice insight. Now, Reb Yosef Dov's overall insights into davening, and he wrote and spoke and thought a lot about the laws and the ideas of prayer. And there's whole books and tons of articles written about this. And a lot of them combine halachic analysis with 
obviously Torah knowledge and insight, as well as his own lived emotional experience of what it means to pray. And I already quoted Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein's article that Rabbi Yosef Dov came to appreciate the centrality of prayer, perhaps in a way that it had not been in the brisker tradition that he came from. He came to see prayer as the central way to communicate and connect with God, obviously alongside Torah, but almost equal to that on some level. One of the most significant things that he wrote on davening, and this is not a halachic analysis, it's a philosophical piece, is called Rayonot al Hatfila, Ideas About Prayer. And he begins with a few pages going on and on about how the Rambam is the great redeemer of prayer. Because the Rambam did two things. First of all, he said that davening is a deoraisa mitzvah versus the Ramban who said that it's a drabanan. So this is a debate that Rab Chaim himself deals with in the second piece in Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi. So Rab Yosef Dov believes that this was unbelievably central when the Rambam said that tefillah is an obligation of the Torah. Second, the Rambam calls it avoda shebelev. It's the service of the heart. So it's a mitzvah that can only be properly done in the heart, even though it involves all sorts of formalities and technicalities like davening and standing at the right place and saying the right words and all sorts of details. But the true mitzvah takes place in the heart. So Rabbi Yosef Dov sees in the Rambam the great visionary and the great philosopher of the concept of tefillah who redeemed it and put it in the central place where it belongs. Now, at this point, it's worth mentioning Rabbi Yosef Dov has an unbelievable insight to explain the approach of the Rambam to prayer. The Ramban asks on the Rambam that there's a source that says that only davening be'es tsara at a time of great crisis is a Torah obligation. So how can the Rambam say that tefillah is always a Torah obligation when it seems to only be an obligation at a time of tsara of crisis? So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains that what the Rambam is saying is not anything different from the Ramban. The Rambam also agrees that davening is only an obligation during an ace tsara. But the Rambam disagrees with the Ramban that an ace tsara means an unusual, out-of-the-ordinary crisis. According to the Rambam, we're always in a state of crisis. Maimonides regarded daily life itself as being existentially in straits, inducing in the sensitive person feelings of despair, a brooding sense of life's meaningless, absurdity, lack of fulfillment. It is a persistent tsara, which exists b'chol yom daily. The word tsara connotes more than external trouble. It suggests an emotional and intellectual condition in which man sees himself as hopelessly trapped in a vast, impersonal universe, desolate without hope. So this is an unbelievable insight to explain how the Rambam understands prayer, that it's only the oraisa in an ace tsara. But daily life is an existential crisis. A person has a crisis of meaning, of despair, of hopelessness. So we're always in a state of Eistzara, and that's why we always have to be davening on a Deoraisa level. So this is just a beautiful formulation of how the Rambam understands the purpose of prayer and what the Torah wants us to recognize when we daven, that we are utterly dependent on Hashem for everything, for meaning, for sustenance, in every way we're in a tsara unless Hashem steps in and saves us. 
Now, the second point that the Rambam makes, according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, is that davening is avoda shebelev. The true fulfillment of the mitzvah is in the heart, not the mouth which is saying the words or the feet that are standing up and bowing, but the true fulfillment of davening is in the heart. And this is a very important, broader point for Rabbi Yosef Dov. He develops this idea that there are certain mitzvahs where even though there's an action that's required, but the true fulfillment of the mitzvah is in the emotional state that's created. So there are times when the Torah says, do action X, but the real fulfillment of the mitzvah comes a moment later when that creates a certain emotional awareness. And if the emotional awareness is lacking, then the person has not fully fulfilled the mitzvah. So this is a very radical idea. Most halachic authorities would say that the halacha governs behavior, not emotions as much. But Rabbi Yosef Dov develops this idea that there's a whole category of mitzvahs which do depend on the emotions. In his Sefer Al-Hachuvah on page 4041, Rabbi Yosef Dov lists a bunch of mitzvahs that are in this category. So for example, the mitzvah of Avelos, to mourn a loved one, the mitzvah is not just to sit on the ground and to wear torn clothing, but the mitzvah is to feel the sadness. The mitzvah of Samachta Bechagecha, which is performed through drinking wine and eating meat to rejoice on the holidays. So the mitzvah is not to drink the wine and eat the meat. It's to feel the emotion of happiness. Saying Shema is a mitzvah to recite the words, but the fulfillment of it is in the fear of heaven to accept the yoke of heaven morning and evening. And he includes also tshuva. The mitzvah of repentance is to say the confession, but the mitzvah is to feel repentance. And of course, he also includes davening. The mitzvah is to say the words and to go through the actions, but it's avodah shebelev, the true fulfillment is in the heart. So this for Reb Yosef Dov is a very fundamental concept. And of course, for all of us, it is as well. And it combines very powerfully the philosophy of the Torah with the behaviors and the details of the halacha. So there are these mitzvahs that are specifically intended to create a certain emotional state and awareness. Otherwise, it's not a full completion of the mitzvah. So that's the other major idea that he applies to davening, that even though there's all sorts of details to the halacha, but part of the whole mitzvah is the emotional awareness of standing and communicating and connecting with Hashem and asking Him for our sustenance and to be able to survive and live and thrive and be able to do whatever it is we're able to accomplish. So these are some of the major themes at the beginning of Rayonot al-Hatfilah. First of all, that davening is a central form of our avodas Hashem. It's a way that we connect with Hashem and bring Him into our lives and reflect the importance of Judaism to our overall life. And the Rambam was the one that saw that. First of all, by saying that this is an obligation of the Torah, which connects with the idea we mentioned that we humans are frail. Part of the human condition is this constant insecurity, this constant frailness, always being on the edge of a disaster. And tefillah is a recognition of that. It's embracing it and using it to connect with Hashem. And second, the Rambam says that the point of tefillah is not the physical observances and the details of the laws, 
but it's the fulfillment of the emotional awareness of connecting and coming closer to Hashem. So according to Rabbi Yosef Adov, those are the key elements of tefillah. Now he does something unbelievable and he explains the progression of the Shemona Esrei. So here we have the full power of brisker analysis and the full emotional depth of Rabbi Yosef Dov, who was a very emotionally and religiously deep person. So we have all of this brought to bear on the study of the Shemona Esrei. And he has some phenomenal insights into how we go from one bracha to the next in the Shemona Esrei, what we're hoping to accomplish and what the continuity between them is. If you look through the topics of the Shemona Esrei, a lot of times it's unclear how we're going from one bracha and transitioning to the next and what the order is. So Rabbi Yosef Adov in this piece brings together his powerful analytic mind and the legacy that he inherited together with his very profound religious sensitivity in order to explain the progression and the transition of the Shemona Esrei. So as is well known, the Rambam identifies that there are three parts to the Shemona Esrei. The first three blessings are Shevach, we praise God. The middle blessings are requests. And the last three blessings are Hoda'a, we thank and express gratitude to God. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says that the reason why the Shevach, the praise, has to precede the requests of Hashem is not just a rhetorical flourish. It's certainly not just a coincidence, but it's the very essence of davening. And here he comes back to his earlier theme, which is by what right does a human being have to address the Almighty, the King of Kings? How do we summon the chutzpah and overcome the terror to speak to Hashem and to start asking Him for things? What gives us the ability to approach Hashem in such a way? So he explains that there are three reasons why we're able to do so. Number one is because it's something we can't control. A religious person person feels an overwhelming need to be able to share their hopes, their dreams, their disappointments, their frustrations with God. So it's not even something that we could stop. We have to daven. It's not a question of if we're going to daven, but how we're going to daven, how we're going to share our lives and update Hashem about all of the things that are going on with us. The second reason is because we have historical precedent. So the Avos, Moshe, the prophets, all the great Jews historically always connected and spoke to Hashem. So we have the historical precedent to follow in their footsteps. And third, because of the Beis HaMikdash, the concept of the sacrifices was that a person should offer themselves their resources to Hashem and connect with Him in that way. So we see from here a model that even when there's no sacrifices, but a person should still offer themselves up and connect with Hashem. And the way we do that is through davening, through speaking to Hashem. So those are the three rationales that allow us to pray and to speak to Hashem. So based on this, Rabbi Yosef Dov says, that's why there are so many rules when it comes to davening. When we can daven, which words we have to use in davening, how to structure the davening, because this is not a free-for-all. A person doesn't just come and start telling Hashem whatever they want and just mumbling words and making things up and putting them out of order. It has to be done following the proper protocols. So we have to follow in the process of the Nevi'im, the way it was historical 
historically done. We have to model it after the Beis HaMikdash and the sacrifices. We have to use the proper language which was set up by the Anshei Knesset HaGedola. So a lot of times people complain about halachic davening, that it's impersonal, it's just saying the same words all the time. But the reason is because you can't have the alternative. You can't just start saying whatever you want to Hashem without any structure. That violates the whole protocol of how to approach Hashem. It has to be done with the age-old wisdom and all of the rules and details that the Torah gives us. So this is the purpose of the opening of the Shemona Esrei, the Shevach, the praise of Hashem. The point is to overcome the issues that a human being has in speaking to Hashem. And Rabbi Yosef Dov explains that we have a contradiction in the way we relate to Hashem. On the one hand, we love Hashem, meaning we want to be connected, we want to feel closer to Hashem. On the other hand, the person is afraid of the power, the might, and the suffering that Hashem allows. So all of these are very scary. So how do we love and feel afraid of Hashem at the same time? In fact, that's what happened to Adam. The first time Hashem came, he went to hide because he was seized by the fear. So we remember instead the model of Avraham who was able to approach Hashem and not be hiding in fear. He was able to connect with Hashem because he saw the goodness and the justice in the way Hashem runs the world. So even though it can be scary, but it's filled with mercy and kindness. And that's what Abraham understood. And that's why he was able to connect with Hashem in an open and loving way and reflect back that love towards Hashem. So that's the first blessing of the Shemona Esrei, the Avos. We remember the history of Jewish prayer. And the point of this is twofold. First of all, it's the history of Hashem's mercy and kindness. So we don't need to hide from Hashem in fear, but we can openly connect with him because of this long history that we know how merciful, how kind he's been to the Jewish people. Second, we also follow in the footsteps of the Avos who began praying to Hashem. So we likewise also follow in their footsteps and connect and speak with Hashem. So that's how the first bracha begins us off in the whole process of prayer. Then we move on to the second bracha, which is Gevuros, the might of Hashem. And specifically, we focus on Trias HaMesim, that Hashem can bring the dead back to life. So the point of this bracha is, again, to show how we connect with Hashem, even though he's so distant and so frightening. But when we look at the world and we see the might and the power of Hashem, and the Rambam writes this, that the study of science brings to the love and fear of God. So studying the world is a way to reconcile the love and the fear. So that's Givuros. We say that we're focusing on the might of Hashem that we see in the world, specifically Trias HaMesim, and that's a way also to feel comfortable loving and fearing Hashem. And then the third bracha is the sanctity, the Kedusha of Hashem. So here we're taking a step back and we're saying that even though we're going to speak with Hashem, but we have to always recognize the vast gap 
the chasm between Hashem and humanity. That a human being at the end of the day is a broken, frail flesh and blood, whereas Hashem is pure Kedusha. So now we're acknowledging that we're going to begin praying and speaking to Hashem, but no one should make the mistake of thinking that somehow humanity and God are on the same level, so we proclaim that Hashem is pure Kedusha. So now Rabbi Yosef Dov sort of summarizes what we learn from the first three brachos that there are three reasons why a human being would speak to God. The first is because they're desperate to connect with this great, merciful, divine being. So that's the point of the first bracha, that we want to have a connection with this overwhelmingly unbelievable God. The second bracha, though, teaches the other side of the coin, which is that a human being is dependent on God. We can't exist without God giving us the energy and the sustenance to live. So we're totally reliant on him, and we as human beings are nothing. And then the third bracha combines these two ideas together that a human being, even though we're so lowly, but if we give ourselves over to the service of Hashem, so that elevates us and that allows us to communicate with this almighty, this unbelievable being, which is far beyond anything we could ever understand or imagine. So that's the point. That's how the first three brachas set up the process of prayer. So now we move on to the main bulk of the Shemona Esrei, which is the 13 brachas during the week, which are bakashos, where we ask for all our daily needs. And here Rabbi Yosef Dov says that this is the central element of davening. Even though there's a lot of different types of davening, there's davening from happiness, there's davening that's praise of God and gratitude, but the main form of prayer that the halacha prioritizes is the begging and asking for the things that we need. That is the real definition of davening. And he adds that even on Shabbos and Yantif, when we don't say all those requests, but even so, that's the central element of davening because we just substitute the physical requests for all sorts of spiritual requests. So even on Shabbos and Yantif, the key element of davening is the bakasha, these requests from Hashem. And the point of the requests is to show that we are utterly dependent on Hashem. I keep using that phrase, but that is the central idea of the davening, that we on our own are unable to exist or do anything. We are totally dependent on Hashem. So in that way, the davening reflects our overall life view, that it's not just that we go about our lives and then a couple of times, three times a day or so, we take a little break and we go ahead and daven and acknowledge this, but it's supposed to infuse our entire lives. Davening is a reflection of our entire life ideal and it should change the whole way that we live by showing this connection between everything we do and our spiritual lives. Everything we do at the end of the day comes back and connects with our connection with Hashem and everything that's going on in our life is all part of that overall relationship. And that's all reflected in the davening. And the davening is basically the thing that sets the tone for our entire day. So the key part of the davening is these requests. Davening in Judaism is not for these super special spiritual people who don't need anything. It's for regular people that are going about their lives and they need all sorts of material sustenance and success. And that's who the davening is intended for in order to focus the way we live our lives and to elevate it and to channel it in the proper direction. 
So even though, as Rabbi Yosef Dov keeps saying, you can't just roll out of bed and start asking God for all sorts of things, there has to be an introduction of Shevach to praise God and then from there go to the Bakashos. But the point of the davening is to come to the Bakashos and to start asking and listing from God all of the things that we need and that we rely on Him for. And that is what really changes our entire lives and puts tefillah at the center of who we are and what sort of life we're living. So now we come to the last three brachas, which are hoda'a, gratitude. So Rabbi Yosef Dov points out that if you read these brachas, really only the middle one is gratitude. The first and the third are a combination of gratitude, but there's also a lot of bakasha. We're asking for things. In Ritzay, we ask for the Beis HaMikdash service back. And in Sim Shalom, we ask for peace. So this is a very important point that the third part of the Shemona Esrei is not pure Hoda'a. It's really more of a combination of Bakasha and Hoda'a. So the first bracha of Ritzei, Rabbi Yosef Dov has a phenomenal insight into it. And he says that this is the fullest expression of Avoda Shebelev. Because in the Beis HaMikdash, they used to say this prayer at the end of the sacrifices. So after they brought all the sacrifices for the day, they would then pray that Hashem should want the sacrifices. He should accept them happily. So this prayer from the Beis HaMikdash was then inserted in the Shemona Esrei. And once the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, so it was adjusted to be a prayer asking for the return of the Beis HaMikdash. So says Rabbi Yosef Dov, what is the point of such a prayer asking Hashem to accept the sacrifices? So he explains that the idea of a sacrifice, and the Ramban talks about this, is that really a person has to give themselves and sacrifice their own self to Hashem. It's like on a fast day, we talk about the starvation, not eating is a form of sacrifice to Hashem. So really a person should have to sacrifice themselves. But Hashem does a great kindness that he allows us to bring a sacrifice, a different animal in place of ourselves. And that's considered on some level like we sacrificed ourselves. So when the animal is brought as a sacrifice, Hashem is experiencing it almost like we sacrificed ourselves. So that's what we're praying, that Hashem should receive this gift and give us the full credit, even though we didn't actually sacrifice ourselves very much. So that's the point of the Ritzay prayer, even after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, even though we no longer bring animal sacrifices, but a person still has to sacrifice themselves and feel totally given over to Hashem. So that's the point of the Ritzay prayer. It's not about the physical things that we asked for. That we already ask in Shema Koleinu, that Hashem should hear our prayers for health and sustenance and whatever other physical things we ask for. Now we're asking that Hashem should receive us and our prayer as if we gave ourselves over to Hashem like a sacrifice. So we're asking that Hashem should turn our whole prayer and our whole selves into a carbon. We should now be the object of a carbon and we should be received happily as such. So Ritzay introduces a whole new concept into the doctrine 
davening that now we're asking for credit as if we're totally given over and sacrificed to Hashem. So now says Rabbi Yosef Dov brilliantly that the last three brachas are in the reverse order from the first three brachas. So the bracha of Ritzay, which is the first of the last three, connects with the third bracha in Shemona Esrei of Kedusha. The point of that bracha, as we explained, is to say that Hashem is so high above us, the only way to connect with Him is to fully give ourselves over to this divine being. So now we're repeating a similar idea in Ritzay. They're both parallel. In Ritzay, we're acknowledging the limitations of our davening. And it's based on the idea of a carbon. An animal sacrifice is such a strange idea. How do we explain this notion that by sacrificing an animal to Hashem, it's as if we sacrificed ourselves? So it's such a strange notion. It's totally beyond us. But that is the way that the Torah tells us to come closer to Hashem. So we accept it. So now we're giving a similar commentary on the notion of davening. How can we come closer to this divine being which is so far above us, it's totally beyond us. So how do we speak to Hashem? So now we acknowledge that we can't understand that. It's like a carbon. We hope that this prayer will be like a carbon. That's the best we can hope for because we as human beings are unable to comprehend the way that this works. So that's similar to Akel HaKadosh that we acknowledge the vast difference between humanity and God and we say that we're going to commit ourselves to God and in that way come closer to Him. Then the next bracha is Modim where we give gratitude to Hashem. So that that bracha is parallel to Givuros, which is about the might of Hashem. So in Modim, we're again acknowledging our weakness, our smallness, which is the idea of the bracha of Givuros. And now we're saying that we are totally dependent on Hashem. We can do nothing on our own. So that's the Hoda'a, that we give gratitude to Hashem. And this follows from the bracha of Ritzay, because there's a certain optimism and gratefulness in Modim. We're saying that we we believe that Hashem is going to accept our prayer as a carbon. So we hope that our previous bracha will be accepted. And now as a result, we're giving gratitude for all of the kindnesses and all of the goodness that he's going to continue to bestow on us. So the modim is a reflection of our belief that even though we're so puny, that Hashem will continue to take care of us and provide all we need because he accepts our prayers. And then the final bracha is for peace, and this is parallel to Avos, where we invoke our distinguished lineage. So the point of this bracha is that now we're calming it down. At the end of this whole roaring chaos of tefillah that has so many ups and downs and peaks and lows and all sorts of stress and tension trying to figure out how to come close to Hashem, but now we relax in the confidence and the peace that comes from knowing that we have this long connection with Hashem, and that will continue. So as a reflection of Avos, we now express that Hashem is going to give us this peace, and that there's going to be an enduring, lasting relationship with Hashem. So this is some of the key points of Rabbi Yosef Dov's analysis of tefillah. There's a lot more in the details, and there's a tremendous amount of insight, and of course I adapted this in my own language, and Rabbi Yosef Dov's language is far superior 
superior in terms of conveying a lot of the emotions and the depths of the tefillah that he's trying to articulate. So I have not done it justice, but we did go through a lot of the key points and the framework of this remarkable piece. And it's just an incredible piece in that it applies so much of the best of the brisker analytic methodology with an overwhelming sensitivity for the heart of Judaism and the experience of lived Judaism, the tensions and the highs and the lows. And there's just so much in this piece bringing all of this together. So these are some of the key conceptual ideas that Rabbi Yosef Dov develops in the philosophy of prayer, which as we saw, he considers one of the central rituals which structures our entire life's work.